Asalaamu Alaikum, welcome everyone. My name is Saqib Safta and I'm your host. In today's podcast, we will be talking to Dr. Mukhtar Ali about Ibn Arabi. Dr. Mukhtar Ali is a research fellow at the Warburg Institute, School of Advanced Studies, University of London. He has recently been appointed as Lecturer of Islamic Studies at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. He specializes in Sufism, Islamic philosophy and ethics, and has published uh, widely in various peer-reviewed venues. He has translated several works uh, on contemporary Islamic metaphysics around Ibn Arabi. He's also an advisor on the Hikmah project, so you can read more about him on our website. And I'm very delighted to say he'll be running some courses this summer based on three books that he has uh, published. Uh, the first book is Philosophical Sufism, an introduction to the school of Ibn Arabi. And this is a layman's introduction to some uh, fundamental ideas around Ibn Arabi's metaphysics. The second one is The Horizons of Being, the metaphysics of Ibn Arabi in the Muqaddimat al-Qaisri. So Daud Qaisri wrote a classical commentary on Ibn Arabi's Fusus, and this work is a parallel English-Arabic text, and Dr. Ali will be delivering a separate course on this. And then the third book is a, a, a classical commentary by Jami on Ibn Arabi's own summary of the Fusus. Uh, so Ibn Arabi's summary is called the Naqshal Fusus and Jami wrote a commentary on that called the Naqdal Nusus and again Dr. Ali will be delivering a course on that. So if you're not sure what some of these books and terms and who Ibn Arabi was, uh, do not worry, Dr. Ali will be explaining all of this in the podcast. To uh, learn more about the courses uh, or to remain updated, please sign up to our newsletter via our website, thehikmahproject.com. And as soon as details are finalized, uh, we will let you know. So without further ado, here's the podcast. Dr. Ali, welcome. Thank you very much. Salaamu Alaikum, everyone. Thank you for having me on, on board. Absolute pleasure. Do you want to tell us firstly about Ibn Arabi? Who was he? And why should we read him today? Now, uh, Sheikh Ibn al-Arabi was one of the greatest uh, spiritual thinkers, mystics, or Gnostics. There's many terms that we have, but uh, in Arabic we say he's Arif. He's one of the Urafa. Um, and, and he was also um, a, a very prolific author who wrote extensively on mysticism and spiritual things. So he's, he's, Ibn Arabi is one of the great thinkers in the tradition of Sufism, which started early on in the early days of Islam, even though it wasn't called Sufism. Um, there was always thinkers and uh, companions of the prophet and, the, the, you know, the, the generations that followed who were constantly trying to delve into the esoteric dimension of Islam, the spiritual dimension of Islam. So that's the first uh, sort of uh, framework we're working with that, that there is two, there are several dimensions, but the most basic framework is an exterior external dimension, 
which is known as the Sharia, and an, an internal esoteric dimension, which is known as the Tariqah. Um, finally, there is a third dimension, which is really the, the dimension which is the one which the prophets encompassed and embodied, and this is called the Haqiqah, the reality. And this is what every every individual is striving to reach. They're trying to reach the Haqiqah through walking on the Tariqah, which means path, and uh, being safeguarded by the Sharia. And so, the, so Ibn Arabi is one of the best representatives of Islamic esoteric thinking or Islamic mysticism, Irfan. So does he write about these various dimensions or does he simply focus on the inner aspect of the deen, of the religion? Yeah, I mean, these things are intertwined in his writings. Remember that Ibn Arabi was first and foremost an Arif, and so he's looking at things from an inward perspective. He's looking at the inner meanings of things. And when we say Sharia, Sharia doesn't necessarily mean that it's only external. It has, Sharia itself has an inward meaning. So, for example, if we say that uh, it is wajib, it is, it is incumbent on the believer to offer the five prayers, well, those five prayers have a interior and spiritual meaning. What is the standing? What do the postures mean? Why does one pray at a certain time? What is the meaning of wudu, of the ablution? What are all these, what, what do what do all of these acts in the Sharia mean? So the esoteric methodology strives to ascertain those inward truths and realities, the meaning behind the postures, the meaning behind the acts of worship. And so if we say the Sharia has been designed to safeguard the person, it is also um, it also relates to the bodily act, acts of worship, such as prayer and fasting and hajj and so on. And the tariqah refers to the inward acts of worship, such as rectifying one's intention, um, creating a spiritual environment in the soul, cleansing the soul, the remembrance of God, contemplation, and all of those things which, which is the, the function of the soul and the, and the heart and the, and the spirit and so on, and the intellect. So this is, this is all intertwined and all interrelated. They're not separate studies. Dr. Ali, could you tell us why Ibn Arabi is called the Sheikh Al-Akbar? I mean, there's a long tradition and line of uh, Islamic thinkers and uh, scholars who've written works ranging from the Masnavi of Rumi, uh, the Hikam of Ibn Tala al Iskandari, uh, Al Imam Al Ghazali, his Ahiya Ul Muddin, for example, just to name a few. So, in, in this long line of scholars, where does Ibn Arabi fit in? So, Ibn Arabi had, he was a prolific author, as I mentioned, and he described the spiritual worlds like no one no one else had described and he de in, in detail so and he's getting where, where is he deriving this knowledge from it's uh he derives it from inspiration and it's called kashf or ilham and these are terms that are used in the quran 
you know, we have unveiled for them, uh, you know, the, the covering. Or it says, ilham uh, is, is, is a term that's routinely used in the Quran. Uh, of course, the Prophet had a wahi, which is the highest form of kashf and ilham. It is the highest form, which is um, specific for the Prophets. So Ibn Arabi's methodology is unveiling. And from those unveilings, which is, in other, in other words, a spiritual experience, he receives knowledge from God directly or from an angel or from, uh, a, a, from the spiritual domains. And when you receive that type of knowledge, that, that knowledge is not like rational knowledge where one needs to study extensively to, 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 to compose you know, an article or a book. That type of knowledge which God gives you comes in the form of ijmal or it comes in the form of, it, it has a great, uh, it's, it's extremely great in, in, in content and, and also in terms of uh, its, its weight. So this is why the, the Quran says, he who has been given wisdom has been given a great good. So one piece of wisdom leads to many different branches of knowledge, different ways of looking at the world. So wisdom is that type of condensed knowledge, knowledge which is compacted. And then a person unfolds it. So wisdom is different from knowledge. Ma'rifah is different from ilm and so on. So that's why, and, and that's one reason. So for, for one thing, Ibn Arabi created a whole system of metaphysics which no one else has done in the past before him and no one else did after him. No one could replicate the amount and the quality of spiritual truths that he put down on paper. That was the first thing. And the second, the second thing is that the Orofa or the, the, the saints of God have maqamat, they have stations. And, you know, just like even the prophets have stations Musa was Kalimullah, Isa was Ruhullah, Muhammad, peace be upon them, well, uh, all, all of them. He was Habibullah, and he reached Maqam Qaba Qawsain. So the Prophet in the Mi'raj reached a, a, a particular Maqam, a station. And that station was described in the Quran as two bows length away, or near, or Adna. So the Prophet's Mi'raj is the ultimate uh, maqam where a person can reach, namely the Prophet, and is reserved for him. So similarly, the saints also have their stations in maqamat. And Ibn Arabi had a great maqam. His maqam was extremely high. He was able to communicate with the, with the prophets in the unseen. He was able to, you know, really... Um, really go very, very far in the spiritual world. So this is why he's considered Sheikh Al-Akbar. Dr. Ali, how much of Ibn Arabi's work is imbued with the Quran and Hadith? Now, Ibn Arabi's works is essentially a, a, a tafsir or, or an exposition of the Quran. Everywhere you find that Ibn Arabi is resorting to a verse of the Quran or a Hadith to prove his point, to establish his point. Now, he sees things through unveiling. 
He has spiritual experience, but he finds the, 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 the relevant verse which explains his point. So, for example, we take this, this idea that God says in the Quran, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Every day God is in a new manifestation. So this is a whole philosophy behind this verse. What does that mean? He's in a new what is yom first of all is it a day is it a moment is it an hour or is it just a, a, a moment in time every instant god is in sha'an and shu'unat that's a that's a very tricky word to translate sha'an means affair state condition uh hukum and so on so every moment every instant god is perpetually manifesting himself his being so this whole concept of being and its manifestations is the is the core of Ibn Arabi's uh, theosophy or metaphysics, what have you, his cosmology, different terms to describe it. But you can take one verse and you can explain the whole of creation with that one verse. God is constantly manifesting himself. So this is wujud is manifestation. And or we, or we take, for example, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ قُلْ say, say, اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ So what is Allah and what is Ahad? Why is there a difference between Allahu Ahad? But then Allah is preceded by Huwa. So there's three different terms, three different words the Qur'an is using to describe divine unity. It says, قُلْ هُوَ Say, He. And then he is Allah. And that Allah is one. So Ibn Arabi says, okay, this refers to three degrees of divinity. The first degree is the huwiya, the identity, the essence, the unknown. So it doesn't have a name. But Allah just refers to himself as huwa, ha. Right? And, and the basic, basic particle in, in Arabic is, is the ha. So who, it's who. It doesn't have any restrictions by the tongue and, and the teeth. It's just air flowing. And so this is indicative of the essence. Allah is the name which represents all the divine names. So it is the comprehensive name. So when we say Allah, then we are, we are referring to the divine names in their totality. And this is the, this is the you, you might say it, represents the essence, but at the level of the names. So it is one degree removed. It is one level of being that is that emanates from the essence. And then that is that collectivity is also known as the ahadiyah. So three words of the Quran he takes and he builds an entire cosmology. He calls it maqaman the maqam ahadiyah, maqam wahidiyah. You know, the, there's the exclusive unity, which is the ahadiyah, and then there's the inclusive unity, which is the wahidiyah. And if we go further into this, then you have, you know, some of his commentators like Kashani, Abdul Razak Kashani, and Qunawi, and whatnot. Uh, they comment and say, Allahu Samad, the Samadiyah, Samad itself refers to the, the uh, it, it, literally, it means that which is which is not hollow. It means solid. And so you would, you would think, what does that mean? Why would God choose the word samad 
And translators use the word eternal, and this is one of its meanings. It means eternal. It means that which is solid or not hollow. And the third meaning, or among the meanings, is uh, the recourse, the refuge. So God is the refuge. Okay, that's understood. What about the second meaning, where it's, God is not hollow? So if you actually contemplate on this word, you'll find that the next verse explains that. What does that mean? God is not hollow. That's why he says, Lem yelid, walem yulad. So it's saying that things do not originate from God as they would originate from the womb of a mother. So this is why he used the walada, yelid. Things are not, existence is not born from him, nor is he born from something else. So he doesn't have a womb or a belly through which something comes out of. This is why this is this is surahs two surah tawheed. And this tawheed is the fundamental thesis and principle of Ibn Arabi's cosmology. He, he, his is the school of divine unity. And this is why the concept of the oneness of being has been attributed to him. Wahdat al-wujud, his most famous sort of doctrine. Whether he used the term or not, it's there implicitly. And this is all he talks about, the oneness of being, divine unity. How do we, under, how do we understand divine unity? And the Quran speaks about divine unity in Surah Tawheed. Brings us very nicely on to my next question, which is about your new book, Philosophical Sufism, an introduction to the school of Ibn Arabi. Could you tell us more about this book? So this book came out of my dissertation, which was a translation of the Muqaddimat al-Qaysari. Now, Muqaddimat al-Qaysari is, Qaysari was one of the commentators um, who was a student of Kashani, Abdul Razak Kashani. Kashani was a student of Jandi, and Jandi was a student of Qunawi. Qunawi was a student of Ibn al-Arabi. So we're looking at, you know, about four generations four generations of student and master disciple in very close proximity to Ibn Larabi himself. Now, Qaysari wrote a commentary on Ibn Larabi's work, Fusus al-Hikam. This is an amazing commentary. It's very clear. It's very well written. And it's considered probably one of the best commentar commentaries out there. Now, the beginning of this commentary, he writes a introduction, a very lengthy introduction, the Muqaddimah. The Muqaddimah outlines all of the major principles of his thinking, of his doctrines, beginning with wujud, the divine names, the universal worlds, um, and so on. He talks about, you know, Alam al-Mithal and unveiling all of these different concepts. And it's very, very condensed. It's very clearly written. It's a beautiful text. So that was my first project, which I translated at. And I wrote some notes on that. Then um, I, I, has, I had a commentary on the Muqaddimah. So I basically took that commentary and I repurposed it and added material and took out material and cleaned it up. And, you know, basically wrote this other book, which is Philosophical Sufism. Um, and 
this is sort of like a, a slightly simplified version of Muqaddimah Qaysiri because Qaysiri is, is speaking. He there's a lot of philosophy there because it's he's trying to appeal to the the scholars of his time, philosophers and theologians and so on. So I left some of that out because I don't think it's that necessary to get into all of those detailed philosophical discussions. But what we do need is what we need an introduction to the school of Ibn Arabi in simple language, dealing with all of these um, major concepts such as you know, being, ontology, divine knowledge. And I go into the origin of multiplicity. How does he deal with that? Uh, because it is the school of the oneness of being. So how does multipl- multiplicity come out of oneness? Then we have the universal worlds. We have the imaginal world. We have unveiling. We have the human vicegerency. Another uh, key uh, doctrine of Ibn Arabi is this whole idea of insan al-kamil, the perfect human. Then we have this idea of the Muhammadan reality, which uh, which is which stems from this whole idea of the perfect human, the supreme spirit in the microcosm, meaning the the, the spirit, the heart, the intellect, all of that, prophethood, messengership, and sainthood, and then finally the resurrection. So it's really like a complete course in Ibn Arabi's metaphysics. So it's it's called introduction, but some parts are a bit more complex than, than others. And it's sort of, um, you know, I, I tried to make it as readable as possible. Um, and that, yeah, that's so that's the second work. So who is the target audience? Is it somebody who may not have a background in metaphysics or Ibn Arabi's uh, perspective? Okay. Would this text be suitable for them? I mean, I I was hoping to have this book be used in a classroom. If 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 um, I were to teach a course on Ibn Arabi, this is the book that I would use to kind of go through the whole system. So it's it was kind of designed for someone who. Um, you know, has very little familiarity and I think they can get through it. It's not totally easy, but it, it, you know, that's just the nature of the discipline. Uh, it, it, it's, there's some terms, but it is, it is quite dense, but I think it's, it's suitable for a newcomer. So often with online courses, uh, Islamic courses, the emphasis seems to be, generally speaking, seems to be around legalism or even ethics, um, or maybe history. Could you tell us about metaphysics? What is that, and why is that important in understanding the deen? And what is the link to uh, it has to spirituality? This is a good question. What's more important, to be honest, than metaphysics is spirituality. Ethics is more important. Metaphysics is also essential because it gives you a holistic understanding of the world. Metaphysics gives you an understanding of the world. Ethics is sort of the practical dimension of how to behave and how to become a better person. Now, uh, so they're, they're sort of, you know, they're related and ethics is, a, is sort of uh, subsumed under metaphysics in some ways, because we have to look at what is the nature of insan and how does insan, the human being, fit into the grand scheme of things what does God want? Why did God create the world? Why did God create man? All of these questions are answered in metaphysics. So both of these disciplines help the other, uh, help uh, each other. 
and metaphysics is the correct understanding of of the world it's the correct understanding of wujud of of you know of uh, the nature of god the nature of being resurrection the nature of the soul all of these questions are 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 discussed in metaphysics so it is essential and and even the whole concept of law sharia what is the nature of sharia what what does why did god desire man to obey certain rules of like prayer and fasting and whatnot what is the you know what is the purpose behind that you know metaphysics attempts to give meaning to life this is why we're we study metaphysics so we understand the meaning behind things inshallah you'll be delivering some courses on the hikmah project site based on uh, your books could you tell us more about the courses and what a student on your course can expect? Well, these um, these texts do take a long time to go through, and they they need a lot of focus and a lot of dedication because they're very dense. So I I I feel that what is useful for people, unless you commit entirely for say like a year. What's, what will be more useful is to look at the course piecemeal and maybe study certain sections. Take, for example, the section of the divine names, which is so essential in Islamic theology. You know, the Quran, the, the, the underlying theme of the Quran is the divine names. And after every verse or every other verse, you find, you know, huwa rahman or rahim huwa alim al-hakim. So God is, is connecting these Verses these ayat, his divine signs, with their roots. The roots are divine. The divine names. So, if you want to understand the Quran, look closely at the divine name that uh, goes along with a certain verse. This is a sort of a little tip. Look into the divine names. See what is the relevance of this name when when a certain prophet is mentioned or when a certain story is mentioned. Why is that name mentioned over another divine name? So that requires a separate study because the divine names are vast in terms of you know the whole concept of how does the how do their names originate? Are they separate entities or are they one with the essence? And how did existence originate from the divine names? Because they are the roots of all things. That requires a separate study. Then we go into say for example unveiling, unveiling is essential because the whole of islam the whole religion of islam is founded on the muhammadan unveiling which is wahi he didn't the prophet didn't come up with the quran by himself he received it so fundamental um the fundamental premise of this deen is wahi or unveiling so anybody who denies unveiling has denied the, the prophetic method. This is the problem. See, we're making this disconnect. The whole, the whole of the Quran is, is, is a wahi. He received every, every word of it. This is the belief. So, and the Prophet was a human. He received his version of unveiling according to his level. But who's to say that un, the door of unveiling has been closed to others? So this is a very important topic. A essential topic 
And this Ibn Arabi says, he who has no unveiling has no knowledge. He's that severe in terms of, um, you know, bringing unveiling to the forefront. Unveiling could be in dreams. It could be in wakefulness. There's so many different forms of unveiling. But it is a tried and true method for attaining knowledge. And it is the, it is the true method. It is the real method. The truest way of attaining knowledge is unveiling. So that requires a separate study, a separate course, a short course or what have you. Moving on to your book, The Horizons of Being, which is a translation of Dawud Qasri's commentary on the Fasus of Ibn Arabi. Is this a complete uh, translation? Uh, I know it's a parallel English-Arabic text, um, or, or is it just the introductory part? So the introduction is about 100 pages, and the Muqaddamat al-Qaisri is only the introduction. The actual commentary is two volumes, and it's quite lengthy. So the Muqaddamat al-Qaisri is a summary of the Fusus, or actually it's a summary of not necessarily the Fusus, but a summary of Ibn Arabi's doctrine. What I've done in the third book, which is the which is Jami's Naqd al-Nuqud, this is a summary of the Fasus. Now, let me explain. Should I explain what this book is about? Yes, okay. please. So, so the Fasus al-Hikim is Ibn Arabi's most famous work. There are hundreds of over a hundred commentaries written on this work. It's extremely dense and complex and whatnot. So, Ibn Arabi decided to write a summary of this work, and it's a small treatise, about ten pages. It's called Naqshul Fasus. The engraving of the fusus. And the Naqshul Fusus also is extremely dense and complicated, even though it's much shorter. And it doesn't go into various tangents and whatnot. It's uh it's condensed. So there are several commentaries on there, not too many, but one of the most famous commentaries of the Naqsh of the summary is Jami Abdul Rahman Jami's full title is Naqd Nusus. So uh, this, this work looks at the Naqshul Fusus and brings in, it's it's sort of, you know, it goes chapter by chapter. What is the Fusus al-Hikam? It's, it's really a study of 27 prophets. 27 prophets who Ibn Arabi and the prophets, as we said, are considered to be the insan al-kamil, the perfect human of the age. And each prophet has a particular reality. And Ibn, Ibn Arabi is identifying that reality and describing that reality in the fas, in the chapter. So this is exactly what's going on. So it's, it's kind of a natural progression from the Muqaddimah Qaysari into the study of the fusus. Now, either you can study the fusus itself, or you can sort of study this summary. Which is which kind of gives you the main ideas, the main themes, without getting into all the um, different discussions that are in the commentaries. Now, remember, there, these commentaries are some of them are multi-volume commentaries. Qaisidis is quite long. Kashani's is a volume. Jandis is is massive. It's like six, seven hundred pages. So it's a it's a lot of material written. There's a huge commentarial tradition surrounding. The Fusus al-Hikam. That's amazing. So, inshallah, you'll be running some courses on the Hikmah project, both live and on demand. If a student is new to Ibn Arabi, 
or even to metaphysics, would the correct trajectory be to start with introduction to philosophical Sufism and then moving on to the horizons of being the, the Muqaddimat al-Qaisri before Jami's Naktar Nasus? Yeah, that's how I would do it. Now, the Muqaddimat al-Qaisri, because it is a parallel Arabic-English translation, I would, um, it would, it would be a good idea for students to familiarize themselves with some Arabic so they can benefit from that. And this will also help them develop their Arabic by looking at a parallel uh, translation. You can learn a lot of words, it's particularly in the discipline. Because, you know, Arabic is a vast language and, and every genre, every field has its own terminology and technical terms. And Ibn Arabi himself uses common Arabic words in very novel ways. So to understand how he's using them, that itself is a, is a huge challenge. And it helps to have, say, a translation or you know, a teacher, a guide to help you along to explain what those terms mean. Even this, like, this term, Ayn, Ayn has you know, hundreds of meanings in Arabic. Um, and in how, how does he use it? It's, it's very confusing. Sometimes it means entity. Sometimes it means essence. Sometimes it means the thing itself. Sometimes it means I, uh, a spring. There's so many meanings for Ayn. So this is where the commentaries um, are useful. An instructor comes handy at this juncture when you're actually dealing with the Arabic. So given the book is a parallel English-Arabic text, how much emphasis do you put on the Arabic? If, if somebody has no background in Arabic, would they be able to benefit? And likewise, if somebody is uh, has a very elementary understanding of uh, some classical Arabic, would they be able to uh, benefit from your lessons? I mean, that depends on the structure of the course. If it's a course, say, that has a prerequisite of some Arabic, then for sure we would be reading passages of the Arabic. But if if that's not the one of the prerequisites, then I, I would maybe use some of the terms like I did in my uh, other session on, on Jami, that um, we would be looking at some of the terms without maybe say reading a whole passage because that could be very daunting for a newcomer or someone who doesn't know Arabic, but we would be looking at these words, you know, insan, uh, ayin, uh, and so on. So, I mean, you have to sort of, some terms cannot be translated. You know, this word, um, when we look at like, say, sharia tariqa haqiqa, when we look at the words wilaya, it's very difficult to translate that word. It's just better to, to stick to the word and just learn that word in the original language. So that's why I kind of use the terms in Arabic without hopefully not losing the student and so that they can start acquiring a vocabulary in, in Arabic while the course is being taught in English. And that presumably is a tried and tested method that you've used with students over the years. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Can I ask also that often Ibn Arabi is seen as an obscure writer, even for native Arabs or people interested in Tasawwuf and Sufism sometimes find his work to be very difficult um, and uh, obscure. What suggestions would you give to somebody who's um, exploring uh, the Akbarian metaphysics? The, the major problem with studying Ibn Arabi is the complexity of his writing and the, the variance 
uh, of the terminology. He uses so many new words and he essentially coins new meanings for these words. It's a whole system. So you have to learn the system. If you try to pick up a text or two here and there, you'll be lost because he's assuming um, that you that you are familiar with these terms. And this is why a text like Qaisiris Muqaddama is so useful because this is where you you first familiar familiarize yourself with the with the basic terms of the discipline. Then you can go on to reading other texts. And I've tried to do that as well with the philosophical Sufism. It, a lot of it has to do with explaining these terms. And you know, the, the book is has a lot of sections, uh, small sections, because it's really just about getting through the terms. So yeah, so I, I think that's 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 the daunting aspect of reading his works is the complexity. And he also had the way he writes isn't very straightforward. It's, you know, he's remember, he is not speaking in your language. He's speaking in the language of the ghaib, of the unseen. He's receiving inspiration. And like a poet, a poet doesn't necessarily speak the way you speak. He speaks in rhyme. He speaks in riddle, allusion, metaphor. He uses these techniques to express the meaning that he has in his mind or in his heart. So the poet doesn't conform to the standard normative ways of speaking, everyday speech. He has his own world. Similarly, the mystic speaks from the perspective of the origin. If he's receiving knowledge from an angel or from God directly, or even look at the Quran. The Quran is not straightforward. It's 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 almost uh, spoken in riddles. Ar-Rahmani al-Arshi istawa. How do you make sense out of that? The merciful Ar-Rahman al-Arsh istawa. What does istawa mean? He ascended upon the throne. So God physically came on the throne. What is this throne? What does this mean to ascend? And why not Allah? Why Ar-Rahman? So what is the meaning of Ar-Rahman al-Arshi istawa? This is the verse of the Quran. But we read it and you know we just pass by this verse. Nobody understands this. And it's it. We just keep going. So there's so many uh, expressions in the holy book as well as the hadith that are, that are enigmatic. And the reason is because they are speaking from a spiritual plane. They are reflecting that world. It's the language of the unseen. It's not the language of common speech. So this is why it appears that his, his language is convoluted. It's convoluted for you and I because we are not familiar with the unseen. But if you enter the unseen and you familiarize with yourself with the unseen, you'll know its language. You'll know its signs. You'll know how the angels speak. You know how God communicates to his prophets. You'll understand the language, the divine language. It's not like our language. So given the importance of Ilham in uh, Ibn Arabi's work and obviously the various uh, wonderful commentaries on his work, are they, read, are they intended to be read at a mere sort of academic level, at the level of concepts? Or is there something more at play when the seeker reads some of these works 
uh, is there a higher cognitive um, faculty um, or a purification of the soul and the heart that's needed to grasp the uh, the essence or the lubbal lubab of of these texts. Now, since the origin of these teachings of these um, doctrines are spiritual through from unveiling and so on, they have an intrinsic light and luminosity. Now, whether or not the student can grasp that and can ascertain some of that light, that's up to them. You can read it as an academic text, and that's fine. But ultimately, a person should transcend that and, uh, and have the knowledge penetrate the heart, have the knowledge be more expansive. And, and this comes through contemplation. It comes through practice. It comes through, you know, um, uh, truly embodying what the author is saying and not reading it like fiction or, 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 or some, you know, something that is just it enters the mind and it stays in the, in the intellect. There has to be a connection between the mind, the intellect and the heart. You know, part of the, the part of understanding this is to cultivate that. But at face value, if the, you know, when and a course is offered, we would be reading the text and trying to understand at the very least the meaning, the basic meaning of the text. What you're asking is sort of, you know, goes into practical mysticism, goes into discipleship and whatnot. And that's sort of outside the, the scope of, of, a, of a course that, that is about reading the text. Dr. Ali, can I end by reading a passage from the Futuhat al-Makiyya and see if you can shed any light on this passage. It's translated by Do Dr. James Morris, a brilliant Ibn Arabi scholar, and I believe it's from chapter 2, verse 73, 72-73, and often used as uh, an intention or niya when reading Ibn Arabi. So it goes as follows. We empty our hearts of reflective thinking and we sit together with God, Al-Haq, on the carpet of adab and spiritual attentiveness, Muraqaba, and presence and readiness to receive whatever comes to us from him, so that it is God who takes care of teaching us by means of unveiling and spiritual realization. So when they have focused their hearts and their spiritual aspirations himam, on God and have truly taken refuge with him, giving up any reliance on the claims of reflection and investigation and intellectual results, then their hearts are purified and open. Once they have this inner receptivity, God manifests himself to them, teaching them and informing them through the direct vision of inner meaning of those words and reports in a single instant. I mean, there's nothing I can add to that. That is, uh, that's, you know, that's, it's perfect as it is. Uh, it speaks for itself. It's completely clear. And it's exactly the, the methodology Ibn Arabi follows. It is a spiritual path. 
And I would just like to say one thing about something he mentioned in the first line or two. And he says that adab, he mentions the word adab. Adab is the key to all things, especially this type of divine knowledge. This is the knowledge of God. You know, this this school of philosophical Sufism is, is the school of tawheed, of divine unity. It is embarking on a path of proximity to God. It's walking a spiritual path. And so that path can only be tread through adab. And that adab means courtesy. It means manner manners it means uh there's a lot of different meanings for that but it means uh, proper behavior and that adab is to relinquish part of that adab as he mentioned here is is to relinquish your attachment to knowledge and become receptive to the divine teachings so we we have a tendency the, the akal has a tendency to acquire acquisition we want to acquire things. We want to acquire knowledge. We want to acquire the world. This is the nature of the human being is to acquire things. But part of the adab with God is to receive, is to create receptivity, to prepare yourself to receive from God. And this has been, uh, this is not, this a- aspect of receptivity has not been highlighted as it should be, especially in this day and age when everyone is trying to, everyone's trying to be a go-getter, a doer, keep doing, keep getting. Even within spirituality, you know, reading ex- a lot of texts and writing a lot of books and papers and, and, and performing a lot of acts of worship and whatnot, all of that is acquisition. But there is a time of silence, of receptivity, of cleansing, and those are the moments where God teaches you. So that's a really important thing to shed light on and to find the balance between working and struggle mujahida, muraqaba, and hudur and, and presence, having being present with God. So there's an active and a passive dimension to spirituality, to suluk, which a person must uh, balance. Inshallah, we'll talk about adab at another time. It's, it's a really, really good uh, topic. Dr. Ali, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to be sharing this time with you. And uh, I really look forward to the courses on the Hikmah Project and future podcasts too. Thank you so much for having me. Inshallah, we'll do it again soon.